What happens to a city when it goes under siege? Why shouldn't you put chicken litter in piles higher than eight feet? And why did I really want my parents to spank me when I was a teenager? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is your host, Luke Taylor. I'm a pastor and expert on all things manure. We'll come back to that later. We're back in the book of Ezekiel today to discuss chapter 4 and the weird sign that he does on the streets for more than a year. We've officially left behind the opening chapters of Ezekiel, and now we're in the meat of the book. We spent five lessons so far just commissioning Ezekiel for his big mission, and today we're going to get into his first message to the people. This set of verses today is not a speech, but it's one of Ezekiel's sign acts. He's going to act out a message, kind of like charades or a mime, but this message is not a game or a show. It's a warning of terrible calamities that are coming to Israel. Now, after spending five lessons just to get through the first three chapters, it's going to feel like we're flying through Scripture today by covering all of chapter four in just one lesson. But this chapter, it's pretty straightforward except for one element. So for today, we're really going to sail through all of chapter four because it's just so clear what Ezekiel is saying. However, there's one element of the lesson today that will require us to spend a lot of time on it. It's the 430-year period that's, it's really quite mysterious. It's hard to place on a timeline. But once I got into studying what that was, it was so fascinating, I decided that it really deserves its own lesson. So I'm saving that aspect until next time and make sure you bring your calculator. But before we get into talking about the judgment that's coming to the city of Jerusalem, that's what Ezekiel is going to warn about in this chapter, let me just remind you of Israel's history for the past few hundred years prior to Ezekiel being written. Now, we all know, I'm sure, that the the Israelites, they spent some time as slaves in Egypt. And it's interesting that they were called Israelites at that time before they even had the land of Israel to live in. At that time, they were a people without a land, but they were known as the Israelites. Well, after Israel got resettled in the land of Israel, that was after being slaves in Egypt. I I shouldn't say resettled. That was when they actually really settled it for the first time, um, because prior to that, Only up until Jacob and his family had they lived in the land of Israel. And then after that, they lived in Egypt for a while and became the slaves. And so after all that, then they settled in the land, which they called Israel. And right after that, they were ruled by the judges. So that's what the book of Judges is about. And that continues into Ruth and 1 Samuel. However, after the judge Samuel, the people decided they wanted to be ruled by kings instead of judges. And so in 2 Samuel... And also in First and Second Kings, you read all about the kings of Israel. And it starts with, you know, Saul and David and Solomon, and it goes on from there. There's good kings here and there. But for the most part, Israel's kings, they were very poor leaders. Um, over the course of a few hundred years, the people really began to drift away spiritually. They started worshiping idols. They were forgetting about God. They were engaging in immoral behavior. Now, occasionally... There would be bright spots in Israel's history under the kings. 
It usually happened when a good king came along. There'd be a short revival and a return to God under a good leader like Josiah in 2 Kings 22. That In that chapter, Josiah becomes king. He decides that they need to fix up the temple because it had just become so run down and neglected. And while they're cleaning it, it said someone found an old copy of the Bible, which up to that point, I think that they really found the book of Deuteronomy at that point. And, and they read it to Josiah. And it said, Shaphan the secretary told the king, this is in 2 Kings 22, starting at verse 10. Shaphan said, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded, he t- it goes through some of his officials. He said, he said to them, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written. So as you see here, the king got desperate for God and and he led the people in repentance and revival. And eventually God says, I am going to stay my hand from the wrath that I was going to bring against this country. So Josiah, he reformed the religion. He restored the temple. He restarted the Passover and the people got desperate to follow God. And God blessed them, and he didn't punish them. However, after Josiah died, the people returned to their old ways. They got apathetic about God. They got spiritually lazy. And you could no longer say that they were desperate for God. We saw a similar situation play out a few chapters before that, whenever Hezekiah was king, and the city of Jerusalem, it was surrounded by the Assyrians, (laughs) and there was no hope. They were surely going to be wiped out. The invading army was massive, and it said the Israelites were just quaking in terror. But they did have one hope. Hezekiah was a king, and he had a heart that was soft toward God. And when he was surrounded by the enemy, in 2 Kings 19.1, it said he tore his clothes, he went to the house of the Lord, and he prayed. He got desperate for God. And God responded to that. God sent an angel that literally killed thousands of those enemy soldiers and ran them off, Not a single soldier set foot inside Jerusalem. And the people had a revival of love for God. It said they tore down their idolatrous high places. They had an altar for the true God and not for false gods. They stopped acting like the nations around them. Instead, they acted like followers of the Bible. And then Hezekiah, he eventually died and the people got lazy again and rebellious and went back into idolatry and sin and acting like the nations around them. And so, again, you could no longer say that they were desperate for God. They became apathetic toward God. And I've used that word apathetic a few times today. If you're wondering what it means, it just means to not care about something. We call that having apathy. Uh, Apathy is just a lack of caring about something. I remember the first time I heard that word, and it was in a joke (laughs) that I had read as a kid. There's like a football coach, and he was was getting after his players because they were not doing too well at a game. And he yelled at one of his players during halftime. He said, I don't know what's wrong with you. Is it ignorance or apathy? Well, that player had had enough by that point. He said, coach, I don't know and I don't care. (laughs) So you see, to have apathy is to not care. And I would say that having apathy toward God, that would be like the exact opposite of having desperation for God. So all throughout Israel's history, like with the kings, you see this pattern of getting desperate for God under one king and then becoming apathetic toward God under another. In fact, you see this under the judges too. The people would grow apathetic toward God, and then they would fall on hard times, 
And then the people would get desperate for God and they'd cry out for help. So he would send them a judge to deliver them. And then that judge would die and, and the people would get apathetic toward God again. And so hard times would come back and, and the people would get desperate again. And the cycle would just keep repeating again and again. And, and here's what I think. Um, here's what I think we find. When Israel wasn't desperate for God, they would soon find themselves desperate without God. When God was by their side, they found themselves getting in over their heads pretty quick, getting oppressed. You can be desperate for God, or you can be desperate without God. And I'm going to take that as our main idea for today, too. As we go through Ezekiel chapter 4, the word of the day is desperation. Because for too long, Israel has been apathetic toward God. And that's about to lead to some very desperate times for Israel. Josiah, he was the last good king that they had, and he's been dead for a while now. Israel has gotten really lazy in in a spiritual sense and really rebellious in a moral sense. And now they're about to get very desperate in a mortal sense. Ezekiel is going to telegraph this to them in chapter 4. This chapter breaks down nicely into three parts. Ezekiel is going to warn in a dramatic pantomime that Jerusalem will be besieged by Babylon. So verses 1 through 3 tell us about the fact of the siege. Verses 4 through 8 are about the length of the siege. And verses 9 through 17 are about the severity of the siege. And so we'll look at each of those in chunks. And your Bible probably breaks them up kind of in like paragraph form. So this should be easy to follow along with. Let's start with verses 1 through 3. That's the fact of the siege. I'm going to be reading, as I always do, out of the English Standard Version. It says, And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you, and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it, and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you, take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall, between you and the city, and set your face toward it, and let it be in a state of siege, and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. So part one of this chapter is warning Jerusalem that a siege is coming. And a siege is when an invading army surrounds a city and they prepare to go in. And so this is a tense standoff because, you know, a city has defenses, and generally speaking, a wall around it. Jerusalem had a wall. So the attacking city would be taking a risk if it immediately tried to breach the wall and attack the people. It would be incredibly difficult to take the city without incurring a large loss of life. And so the, de- the, def- <coughs> the defending city would have a huge advantage because of their wall. So what would the attacking army do? Well, typically, they would blockade the city and, and play a waiting game. They would camp outside the city for days, for weeks, for months, even years, waiting for the people inside the city to surrender because the people within the city were cut off. They had no external supply of food, sometimes no source of water. So they were stuck until either they surrendered or until they just got captured, uh, unless someone else came along to save the day. But that did not usually happen. So they'd hold out as long as they could, you know, with um, holding out for hope. But it was usually a bygone conclusion how this was going to play out. The defending city had a military advantage, but the attacking city had the time advantage. 
and they usually had no timetable or a limit on resources, so they could just wait out the defending city for as long as they wanted. So the defending city would get pretty desperate for food and water as time went on. And there's stories of people, um, you know, in history, people in defending cities starving to death, sometimes even turning to cannibalism as they try to put off surrendering. And typically that's how it would always end. You know, either they surrender or the people just get so physically weak that they really can't effectively defend against an attack. And, and depending on how stocked up they were on resources, you know, like I said before, this process could go on even for years. When the Romans took the city of Carthage, and that was about 150 years before Jesus came, that siege lasted about three years. It's also said that when the Greeks, when they were trying to take the city of Troy, and that was in a famous battle like over 3,000 years ago, it's believed that they surrounded the city for a whole 10 years before they were able to take it. So like I said, on the outside, all the invading army has to do is wait. On the inside, though, it's becoming more and more every day a desperate situation. And Ezekiel is warning that the city of Jerusalem is going to be besieged by the Babylonians, which means that Jerusalem is going to fall. And Ezekiel isn't like outright saying it. You know, he's supposed to he's supposed to set up some props in the town where he's staying to communicate this to the people. And I'll come back to talking about this town in a few minutes, but I just imagine I, you know, he probably went out into um, out in public to perform this act. He probably went down to the city square, somewhere that had a lot of passersby. And I'll just go over for a minute the props that he's using as he did all this. First, he was told to lay down a brick and that this brick would symbolize Jerusalem. And, and one of the interesting things about Jerusalem to me, uh, even today, it's got a very distinct skyline. Uh, and perhaps it did back then, too. I'm not sure. He drew Jerusalem on this brick. And uh, presumably people knew what it was. Bricks also, they were common in ancient Babylon. Um, it was their distinctive constructive element. They liked bricks. And so this brick would probably be about the size of a cement block that you would see today. So it was kind of big. Ezekiel's told to create little um, like models of what you would see in a siege and to, to place these around the brick. And so it probably looked like he was creating a scene with um, miniatures or action figures or something like that. He was told to build little model siege ramps and siege walls. And, and so those would be like mounds that invaders would heap up around a city wall so that they could try to breach it. He's told to put little miniature battering rams and campsites. And this is going to represent invaders surrounding the brick. And so all these things are pretty self-explanatory as to what they all are. The last thing it mentioned was an iron griddle. And so this would have been quite large, um, larger than the brick, actually, larger than the other props that Ezekiel had set up. So it's believed that this griddle is supposed to represent God. Uh, griddles are mentioned in the Bible, um, just as something that like sacrifices were set upon in the tabernacle and temple. So because of the size of this thing and its association with holiness, it's believed that it's placed here to represent to the audience that this is God. And not only are the Babylonians against Jerusalem, but that God is against it as well. Notice how many times in those verses the words against it were. And not only that, not only the people were against it, like the Babylonian people, but God was against the city as well. And so Ezekiel lies down and he faces this scene, probably to show that he and his fellow Israelites, um, 
they're not going to be able to do anything to change the dire situation that Jerusalem's going to go through. They're just going to have to sit there and watch it play out. Remember that as Ezekiel is doing this, he's not living in Jerusalem at that time that he's giving this message. And his audience is not in Jerusalem. He's among 10,000 Jewish people who are being held at a city called Tel Aviv. And so the people are, they're probably tempted to think that um, they're, they're held captive right now. They're probably tempted to think that it's only temporary, that eventually Israel, the rest of the armies of Israel will come and retrieve them and they'll get to go back home to Jerusalem. And Ezekiel's trying to tell them, you know, no, Jerusalem is not coming to their rescue. Jerusalem itself is going to fall. And that would have been shocking to think that the city of God, okay, the city where God put his name and his temple, that is going to fall. This would actually seem unbelievable to the Israelites. They thought that they were special because of their city and because of their bloodline. But Ezekiel's telling them that this has not made the Jews invincible. It was their obedience that ensured that God would take care of them, not their physical location and not their race. What God wanted was their obedience. And if you are not desperate for God, you will find yourself desperate without God. Since the people had stopped following God, even the legendary city of Jerusalem would fall to these Babylonians. Ezekiel's message is supposed to communicate to these people that Jerusalem is not coming to save them. Jerusalem is about to find itself in a desperate situation. And so these captives are themselves in a desperate situation. Next, let's talk about the length of this sign. So Ezekiel is told to come out and perform this act, not just once, not just twice, but for 430 days in a row. Let's read Ezekiel 4, chapter, or verses 4 through 8. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side or to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. Ezekiel has to go out 430 times and perform this sign act. And by the way, the technical name for the little skits that Ezekiel and some of the other Bible prophets will perform, they call those sign acts. Um, that's sign-x. That's how scholars refer to them. I'm not a scholar, but if you read books like on the prophets, you'll often see this phrase used. So anyway, it doesn't say how long each day that Ezekiel is supposed to go and do this. I imagine it was at least a few hours a day. Um, some people take this so literally, they think that Ezekiel actually lied there on his side for more than a year without ever getting up. And I think that's going a little bit overboard on the literalism here. Um, he, he would have had a lot of money in chiropractor bills after that. I think he just went out every day and he did this sign act, you know, maybe for a few hours or so. And then he went home. Uh, it would have been weird. It would have been attention getting to many people in the community, especially since Ezekiel, I guess he didn't really talk the whole time. He was doing this. He was kind of like a mime. The only thing he ever said was when it said he prophesied against the city in verse 7. I'm guessing that meant using words. Uh, but he all he did was make clear it was Jerusalem that was under God's judgment. 
And I'm sure he got a lot of attention for doing this because he did it for so many days in a row. And so for the 430 days, Ezekiel is supposed to lie on his side um, first for 390 times in a row and then for 40 days on his other side. Uh, first on the left side, then on the right side. The left side represents the sin against the northern kingdom of Israel, which was extremely sinful. And the right side represented the southern kingdom of Israel, which was, it was a bit better, but also quite sinful. And like any time there was a good king in Israel's history, one of those kings who led the people closer to God and, and would have like a revival under his rule, those kings always came from the southern part of Israel, which was called Judah. No good kings came from the north. <laughs> and so that's probably why the vast majority of the sinfulness that God is punishing, it's directed toward the northern kingdom, the northern side of Israel, represented by when Ezekiel is lying on his left side. Only 40 days of the 430 days is put on the right side. Now, why 430 days? That is the burning question in this chapter. If you read this chapter in preparation before we started, you know, perhaps you were wondering like what the 430 days was referring to. Maybe you've been a longtime Bible reader, and so you've noticed this 430-day period mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, and you wondered, like, hey, what's that all about? And perhaps this has been a lingering question for you for a long, long time, and I'm going to try to answer that question in the next episode. So make sure you're subscribed, because it's such a big question. If I tried to delve into it right now, we would, like, totally abandon the flow of this chapter and I would be dragging this program out <laughs> so much longer than my voice could probably hold out. So what I'd like to do is finish explaining the chapter today. And then we will come back to the significance of the 430 days. We'll do that in the next program. So let's put a pin in that for now. Um, but for now, this section, it's referring to the length of Jerusalem's punishment. And the first part uh, was the fact of the siege. And this part is about the length. The length, not just of the siege itself, but the whole time that the city will remain under God's judgment. It, it is said that Ezekiel is told to lie on his side for 430 days, which could imply that the siege was going to last about 430 days. In fact, according to history, the siege actually lasted about 500 days. It was about a year and a half. So that's kind of close to 430. Um, but also the verses mentioned that the 430 days uh, that Ezekiel does this that they actually represent 430 years of punishment for Jerusalem. So what happened to those 430 years? Again, that is the question that we'll return to in the next program. But if we could say one thing about the siege today, it's that Jerusalem's punishment or, or discipline, you know, whatever word you think is more appropriate, it's going to last a long time, okay? Really just kind of take that idea away for now. This is not a short punishment. Uh, did, whenever you were younger, did your parents ever give you a choice of what kind of punishment that you would receive whenever you did something wrong? Like whether you would get spanked or grounded? You know, when I got to a certain age, if I had a choice, I would choose the spanking. Because when you get spanked, you would just get it over with right away. But if I was grounded, well then, you know, the punishment, it lingered on for days or for weeks. And when I got to a certain age... <laughs> <laughs> I would. I very much desired to just get the punishment over with right away rather than dragging it out. Now, I didn't get that choice very long because, you know, I had parents. Um, I did have parents who spanked you whenever you did something wrong, and I'm glad I did. But the last time that I was spanked, I was probably like 12 or 13. And after that, I didn't get a choice anymore. You know, if I got in trouble, 
I had to be grounded. I, there wasn't spankings anymore. <laughs> you know, it's funny how whenever you're little, like a, a little kid, you think that spanking is just the worst thing in the world that you want to avoid. But whenever you become a teenager and you get grounded instead, <laughs> it's so much worse, right? Like I would wish that I would wish that I could be spanked when I was a teenager. That would have been a lot better than just, you know, because when you get spanked, you get you get your punishment over with really quick. And when you get grounded, you just have to sit around and you're not allowed to do anything fun for a week or two or whatever it is. So, um, oh, and then I was thinking also, and this never happened to me, but I guess the next worst stage after groundings, like the next worst stage of punishment would probably be getting kicked out of the house. You know, obviously once you get to a certain age, um, when you're an adult, okay, and your parents, they aren't spanking or grounding you anymore. But if you're still living there and you violate the rules too severely, you know, you could be kicked out. It sounds harsh, but I mean, it happens. It does happen sometimes. Um, and honestly, if the parents have to go that far, it might be something that's for the best for a young adult, if that's what it takes to get them to straighten up. But here's my point in bringing all that up. Okay, if I was in a person's shoes who had maybe literally been evicted from their own parents' house, I would then say that's worse than being grounded, right? <laughs> like, like if there's gradations of the punishment. When you're a little kid, you think spankings are the worst thing ever. But once you get to a little bit older and you start being grounded, you would wish you could go back to the spanking. If you get a little bit older still. And now if you screw up too bad, you could be kicked out of the house. You would probably miss the groundings, right? <laughs> okay, that's all I'm saying. There's gradations to the punishment. And, um, and, and so what feels like the worst punishment in the world at 15 or 16, it's really not a huge deal to a young adult. You know, it's much better than the punishment a young adult faces from mom and dad. Grounding is temporary, but getting kicked out is more permanent. Okay, back to Israel. Israel is about to get something worse than a mere spanking from God. They're going to wish they had just gotten spanked or, or even grounded. But no, Israel is getting evicted. Okay, God has punished nations before, but those other nations, they weren't God's children. They were Gentile nations. And you could even say they had more of an excuse for their misbehavior than Israel did. So a lot of times they got spanked. Israel is about to be kicked out of the house. And compared to what those other nations got, Israel's really about to get it a lot worse. <laughs> like they're going to lose home privileges for 2,500 years. They don't get to be a sovereign nation again until 1948, which we're going to talk about a lot next time. So Israel honestly thought that their status as God's chosen nation, they thought that it would protect them from any severe consequences to their sin. You know, just like a young adult might think, oh, mom and dad would never kick me out because I'm their kid. Well, Israel thought that they were special, e even invincible. But in fact, their specialness is actually going to make their punishment even more severe than it would be for anyone else because Israel was given the Bible. God did miracles for Israel. So they have absolutely no excuse for how they've been acting. And the consequences are going to last a lot longer than they ever dreamed. Israel is about to learn if you aren't desperate for God, you're going to find yourself desperate without God. So after studying the fact and the length of the siege, now let's discuss the severity of the siege. And that will cover the last set of verses from today. Ezekiel 4 verses 9 through 13. And you... 
take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lay on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. And your food that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. From day to day, you shall eat it. And water you drink by measure. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen. From day to day, you shall drink. And you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Now, let me just pause here for a minute. Just a couple notes on this before we move on to the final verse and forget this aspect right here. Although you might want to forget this aspect after what you just heard me read. So Ezekiel is first told to eat bread for the entire time and to drink a small amount of water for the entire time that he performs this action. And this is to represent the lack of access to food and water that the people in Jerusalem are going to have during the siege. So he's just to make one loaf at a time and just eat a little bit of that loaf at a time, just a little bit each day, and then to make that bread last a long time. Uh, It says to eat 20 shekels a day, and so that would equate to about eight ounces of food per day. And the amount of water that he drinks, it'll be about two-thirds of a quart per day. So the significance of his, his sign act is to show that, you know, like any city under siege, Jerusalem is going to be brought to the point of starvation. It's going to be a very desperate situation. And again, if you're not desperate for God, you're going to find yourself very desperate without God. And then Ezekiel adds in <laughs> the disturbing detail here that the bread is to be baked over, um, okay, as the Bible says, human dung. Ezekiel is going to protest this in a minute, and it's the only aspect of the whole thing that he puts up a fight about, and understandably so. But he's also supposed to communicate the desperation of the situation by baking his meal over, you know, frankly, poop from humans. Now, why would someone do this? Well, whenever you baked bread, you do need something to burn, okay? Some kind of fuel source for the fire. Well, excrement. Um, it can be used as a fuel source. You know, believe it or not, it actually can be flammable. I grew up on a farm uh, where we had chicken litter. And you could collect it and spread it over fields as a fertilizer, you know, like a fertilizer. Um, There were times where I've even seen piles of chicken litter. I've seen piles going down the road looking over at a pile and seen it actually smoking. They've been known to catch fire before, like just spontaneously. They, They say, do not store chicken litter in piles higher than eight feet, because if you if it starts getting too much weight on it, it can actually spontaneously combust. <laughs> it's like that flammable. So excrement, it, you know, it can actually be flammable, believe it or not. I truly hope that you didn't know that before you tuned in <laughs> to the Cross References podcast today, but at least you know it now. Okay, you can do whatever you want with that information. But uh, what Ezekiel is told here is to cook this bread over human excrement. Okay, again, cooking your food over poop, it's just not something that you would do, right? I mean, unless you just absolutely had to, unless you had no choice. You wouldn't do something like that unless you were so desperate for a meal and you were so low on supplies that you literally had no choice, that you had to do this to survive. And that's the kind of desperate situation 
that the remaining Israelites are going to find themselves in someday very soon. Okay, so does Ezekiel really know? <laughs> this is his question. Does he really need to go this far to warn them about this? And he asked God about that in verse 14. Let me read the rest of the chapter. Then I said, Oh, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself from my youth up until now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assound to you cow's dung instead of human dung, on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this, that they may lack bread and water, and look at one another in dismay, and rot away because of their punishment. So first of all, thankfully, God allows Ezekiel to use animal excrement instead of human excrement. And Ezekiel accepts this. Um, animal excrement, it's actually considered less gross than human excrement. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry I don't have a more academic or technical term besides gross. That's just how I'm going to describe it. All right, animals such as cows, they tend to eat just one type of food. Whereas humans are omnivorous, we eat all kinds of stuff. So our excrement tends to be more gross than animal excrement even. And Ezekiel is aware of this. <laughs> so, so he's more accepting of using animal poop as his fuel source than what would presumably be his own. And again, all of this is to communicate the horror of the siege of Jerusalem that's coming. Okay, Think of how dire the siege situation is that... Uh, you know, it's going to where we've gotten to a point now where we are comparing one kind of poop and weighing the pros and cons of it versus another kind of poop. All right. When you get to that point, you know, you are hitting rock bottom. All right. We're comparing different kinds of poop. It's kind of like comparing Republican politicians versus Democrat politicians. All right. <laughs> sure. One might stink a little bit less than the other, but they're both pretty gross. <laughs> and you wouldn't want either one of them present while you're eating a meal. There was actually, though, for reals, there was an experiment done with this a few decades back. Um, I, I think the study was done in Israel. And it found even dogs, they were not willing to eat this meal in the study. Um, that part is not a joke. Like the dogs, they were not willing to eat food that had been cooked in this way. And by the way, I'll mention this too. If you go to your local health food store, you might see something on the shelf that's called Ezekiel bread. And like it says it on the package, Ezekiel bread, and they'll put right on the package, Ezekiel 4.9. Okay, that's a verse that we read today. And it was, that, that verse is really just about the ingredients of a loaf of Ezekiel bread. I'm assuming that the Ezekiel bread that you find in stores, <laughs> I'm going to guess that it was not true Ezekiel bread, that it was not really cooked over excrement. Okay, um, but you might see that at the store and wonder. The ads say, actually, the ads say about Ezekiel bread that it's one of the healthiest breads out there. Now, I have no idea if that's true. Um, I'm not like a health expert on that. So it might be, it might not. I'm just saying I have no idea. But the reason that the ingredients in this chapter are given for that type of bread, the reason is that it's actually a lower class type of bread. Um, like lower class people would have eaten this type of bread in, the, in Ezekiel's day. The type of bread that poor people would make, basically. So it's meant to imply that the conditions that the people in Jerusalem are dealing with during the siege, 
that basically everyone's eating the cheapest bread available. Okay? Nobody is living in luxury during the siege. And then God says there in the last few verses that the people are going to be in such desperation that it says they are looking at one another in dismay. That word dismay is repeated a few times. And honestly, I just I don't really feel like dismay is a strong enough word that to really communicate the severity of this passage. All right? Like if my ice cream falls off my ice cream cone and it hits the ground, I would say that I gazed down upon it in dismay. That would feel like a more accurate use of that word. If I had just spent $6 on that ice cream cone over at Baskin Robbins, okay, I would look down upon it in dismay. There, In fact, there may be some weeping and gnashing of teeth as well. But my point is, like dismay, it just didn't feel like a strong enough word. So I looked up the Hebrew word for there where it says dismay. The Hebrew word is shamim, and it means literally... What it actually means is to be left desolate and appalled. And I think that's a bit more precise as to how like Israel is going to be feeling during this siege that's coming to Jerusalem. The people will be starving. As I kind of mentioned before, there have been stories in, in history of people literally turning to cannibalism during sieges. In fact, um, there, was a, there was a siege going on in Samaria in 2 Kings 6. Let me just read you what it says in 2 Kings 6. Not reading every verse, but just part of this story, starting at verse 24, it said, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for every five shekels of silver. A lot of dung in this, in the verses today, right? Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. This woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give me your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Um, It's just a story about another siege that happened in, in Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, in Samaria, where things were so bad they were eating their own kids. Um, that's how that's how bad things had gotten inside the city. That's how evil the people were that they would even still go to that point. And one last thing about the situation that Ezekiel is talking about when he talks about the siege that's coming, something that's, that's missing from his message is actually what kind of terrifies me about it. He does not say, repent, or all this stuff is going to happen to you. This is not a message calling for repentance. It's actually a warning to the people that this is going to happen and he's not giving them any hope that like Babylon's going to back off at the last minute or surrender or change their mind. God's not coming in with a rescue plan at the last minute. Now, he's saying the the siege is going to happen. The people are going to starve. People are going to die and the city is going to be taken. Okay, are the people going to beg and plead for God's mercy? as they're going through the siege, I'm sure they will. But God's saying up front, I'm not saving you this time because you've blown it too many times. So for Israel's audience, or I mean, Ezekiel's audience, I should say, they shouldn't put their hope for Israel in some kind of last minute miracle scenario. Their only hope is to, they can still repent. They can ask for God's forgiveness. You know, if they want to go to heaven, that's the best thing that they could do. But Israel's story of being a nation, that is over. Or at least it's being put on pause 
for a long time. Israel was not desperate for God, so now they're going to find themselves hopelessly desperate without God. A siege is an awful situation, and Jerusalem is going to face it coming soon. I mean, okay, I know I made a political joke earlier, and I hope you weren't offended by that, but I thought it was better than a poop joke instead. But do you want to—I mean, really, this is some really dire stuff in this chapter. Like, would you rather talk about the children— who are going to suffer and die because of the sense of their parents and grandparents, there's really not much of a positive angle to this situation. Um, I almost called today's lesson fecal matters because I thought that'd be a, you know, a funny title, but I don't know if anyone's going to listen. If I call it that, I might end up calling it that <laughs> I'm trying to decide what to title this program today. Um, but at, listen, after hearing of all the horrors that is Israel is going to experience, um, Maybe you're wishing you didn't tune in to the program today, regardless of what the title ends up being. But there's something amazing in this chapter that I did want to talk about in the next lesson also. And you're going to be really glad that you had this background of talking about this stuff today. Because whenever you tune in again next time, we are going to discuss those 430 days that were mentioned and the 430 years and what that's all about. So we really have some great stuff ahead. You are going to be glad that you got this background information today. We're going to close down in a few minutes with um, a recap and some personal application of this chapter. First, I'll just ask real quick, do you like fake news? Well, if not, then you most definitely do not want to check out my other podcast. It is called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And on that weekly show, we look at the past week of news stories through kind of a meta narrative of how the media covered those stories. And it's a lot of fun. It's focused on current events. So if you don't like fake news, you definitely don't want to come listen to it. But if you like laughing at fake news, come join the fun. We have new episodes of that one on Fridays. And then if you have a question on this chapter, um, leave a comment. Shoot us an email. Crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be more than happy to take questions, recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. Any of that stuff, send it our way. Next time on this podcast, I do plan to talk about the 430 days that were mentioned in the verses today. Uh, like I said, I just didn't have time to get into like the significance of that number this time. But it was so fascinating as I dug into it. It just really deserved its own program. So that's going to be program 17. I think it'll be called the 430-Day Mystery. Look for it to come out next Monday. Okay, today, just to recap, we broke down today's verses into three sections. And the first section, that was verses 1 through 3. It was about the fact of the siege. The second section was verses 4 through 8, and that was the length of the siege. And then finally, we had verses 9 through 17, the severity of the siege. And every aspect about this scenario that um, that God is warning them about is going to be desperate. It's going to be grueling. The people are going to die of starvation, thirst, and eventually warfare when the Babylonians invade. And Ezekiel is going to be talking about the eventual fall of the city in chapter 5. We'll cover that um, in episode 18 or 19. But today's application, I would say, it's be desperate for God. That's how I would sum it up. Because as I've been saying, if you are not desperate for God, you will find yourself desperate without God. 
Okay, we will all go through struggles in life. Desperate circumstances, trials and tribulations, periods of loss and grief, periods of struggle and hopelessness. Our patience and commitment and perseverance will be tested. And maybe you're going through something like that right now. Maybe you're looking for answers and you aren't finding them. The Bible says that we are all going to encounter times like these, what the Bible calls suffering. Now, I grew up on a farm, like I said before. That's why I'm such a proud manure expert. And uh, here's something else I learned about on the farm. Occasionally, you have to put an animal down. Now, maybe it was an, you know, an old animal that had some kind of physical condition, some kind of constant pain. It had no quality of life. And sometimes you'd put an animal like that down. You know, we'd call it putting it out of its misery or ending its suffering. We'd say all it's doing is suffering. So growing up, I kind of used to think of suffering as just a physical thing. But as I've gotten older, I found that most of the suffering that we deal with in life is usually going to be suffering of the soul. Hard times. And and they can be brought about by our own choices. You know, sure, that happens sometimes. But they can also be brought about by external things that are beyond our control. Everyone is going to face trials and suffering in this world. And the Bible says that God uses these times to grow us. He uses hard situations to make us more patient, more holy, to test our perseverance. This is where some people fall away, but not you. You use these times to draw into God. A lot of people I've talked to said that they went through really rough periods that they just didn't ever understand. You know, it was depression or a sudden loss, an unexpected divorce. And and they said they don't know why God let them go through that. But they also will say that they learned things through it and drew closer to God through it in ways that they would not trade for the world. You know, it's easy to say you have faith whenever you're in the abundant seasons of life. But oftentimes that faith, it it might be pretty weak because, you know, you aren't really living by much faith when everything's going well for you. But in the good times, you know, we also get kind of lazy sometimes or sloppy when it comes to our relationship with God. And then a dry season comes along and that tends to wake us up. It'll snap us out of it. Now, listen, we don't always have to go through so many dry seasons. In fact, If we get close to God in the abundant seasons of life, we might avoid needing to go through a dry season. You know, he might withhold some calamity from coming our way if we've already drawn closer to God before it comes. So my application from this chapter today is that we need to stay desperate for God, to live holy and sanctified lives, to seek the Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance every day. Because if we don't live desperate for God now, we might find ourselves desperate for God later. Whenever we're in a tough season, we don't forget to pray. We're already praying constantly. We're already going down to the altar during praise and worship. But how much better would it be to go down to the altar in the good times, just because we want to draw nearer to God? Be desperate for God so that you don't find yourself desperate without God. And one more thing I want to mention is the command that God gave Ezekiel early on in this chapter— He said to lie on your side for for 430 days because in doing so, as God said in verse 4, God said, you shall bear their punishment. And so that's what Ezekiel did. Only, you know what? 
Ezekiel's action actually accomplished nothing as far as the actual bearing of their punishment goes. It didn't do anything for Israel. It was totally symbolic. And it did communicate something about future events. But what I'm saying is Ezekiel did not actually bear any of their iniquity during that period that he laid on his side. Now, I'm sure it was not comfortable for him to do that for more than a year straight. I'm sure he had some aches and pains. But it didn't actually alleviate any of the punishment that God had set aside for the nation of Israel. Israel had a sin problem, and nobody could do anything about it. Nobody has the capability to bear another sins. Ezekiel's action was purely symbolic. But about 600 years later, someone else came along named Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Well, 1 Peter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, just like Israel, we have a sin problem. And nobody can do anything about it, except Jesus. If you haven't done so yet, accept him as your Lord and Savior today. You don't have to bear your own sins. Jesus already did it for you. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, do not light manure on fire.